So I was having a discussion with someone this week. I don't know if he wants me to say his name, but I'm going to tie it into our, our study of this week. And the discussion was about faith. And there is a misconception that many people have, which is that faith is where logic ends. It's the point where we can't think anymore. And we say, okay, that's it. I believe. I have trust. And that's, honestly, that's not how it should be approached. I want to change the way people think here. Faith is where logic begins. Or where that is the most logical response to a given situation. And I want to show you how. So a lot of times we go through challenges, looking for a job, let's say. And I'm trying to find a job. And it's not working. Interview after interview, it's horrible. This interview is horrible. That interview is horrible. And if I'm a person of faith, then I say to myself that there's a bigger plan. Although this didn't work out for me, but I am only limited to my space and time. And I'm sure that in the next time, there's going to be something better. It's better that I didn't work for this person because if I did, who knows how difficult it would have been. So why did God put me in that interview in the first place? To learn and to grow, but not to get into the job. It was good for me that they didn't get me in the job. So let's say that person has that mindset. That's a lot of logic that's involved. There's a tremendous amount of logic. That's why some people look at me and they say, do you ever find being faithful difficult? I say, yes, it can be. But it's still the best logical response to my given situation. So let's say somebody's in pain. They can't find their job or they're dating and someone threw them out for no reason and said, I'm done. What? Why? I can't tell you. Why not? Because if I tell you, then I'll hurt your feelings. I'd rather not tell you and leave you thinking for months on end. Right? That's how it works. So you're left in the unknown. After all those years of giving, of trying, suddenly, just like that, with no explanation. So a person with faith works. What's he working on? His logic. Over his emotions. Or her emotions. The emotions are kicking in. How can this happen to me? How is this fair? I'm angry. It's painful. The job's not working. Boom, boom. Right? The punches are coming because that's how life is. So with no faith, the punch comes. How? Because I was unlucky. That is the response. Luck is everything. Coincidence. I had bad coincidence. There was one good coincidence that I had. That I was the one that came to be conceived. That was, a, that was the only good coincidence. Co maybe it wasn't. Right? But of the millions, I was the one that was conceived. After that, everything is unlucky for me. The way I look, the way I this, the way I that. And suddenly life builds challenges. So you've got one layer. Then another year comes another layer. And another year there's another layer. Until we have... Okay, by the time I reach 35, 40, there's a lot of layers of challenge until we burst, till we, till we explode. So how do we deal with that? Faith is actually using logic to overcome my emotions. There's something that needs to be... We need to think about that for a minute. It's using logic over my emotions. How can this happen to me? Why was this fair? There's anger. There's anxiety. How, I, don't want to, I don't want to continue with life. I don't want to continue with... I'm done. All of these thoughts can be fixed. Not just like that. It takes work. But with using the logic of... I am here for a reason. There is a bigger plan. I do not see the bigger plan. But I know that there is a bigger plan for me. And that there's a force out there that wants good for me because it allows me to exist every day. Now, to come to that idea that there's a bigger being than me also takes logic. 
It's the most logical response to looking at this world. By the way, if it gets too hot, you can open the door at the back or we can turn off the heat. I don't know. I get hot when I speak. So I don't know if it's me or if it's anybody else. Body heat, whatever. So uh, it's all faith. So anyway, but um, what was I saying? So if it doesn't work for me, I'm using logic over, which, which is called in the name of faith, not blind, but it's a logical response to my experience and my emotions. And I'm overcoming my emotions with my logic. And to have faith in itself means that I also recognize that the, the world isn't a coincidence. You see, if I'm going through a challenge with zero faith, I'll say, why did it happen to me? Bad luck. I can't even ask that question. You are not allowed to ask a question of why bad things happen to me if you remove faith from you. The, without God in the picture, why do bad things happen to me? Because it was bad luck. This person had a heart attack at 45. Bad luck. That person had a crash and got in an accident and got injured. Why? Bad luck. The other person went on the same road, nothing happened. Good luck. There's no, there's no right to even ask the question. The question is a theological question in its first place. The fact that I even ask how, you're saying there's order and that's why you ask how? If I ask why, you're saying that there's a reason for why, that's why you have the right to ask why. But if there is no why and it all happens randomly, and this entire earth happens randomly, then the question of why is this bad thing happening to me, not, you have no right to ask it. You can, you can, you can do whatever you want, but the question won't work. It's a theological question. Now, that in itself, the logic that there is a creator of, of this universe is logical as well. You look at the world and you say, wait a second, it's very fine-tuned. The odds for life on this planet is very, very limited, but yet it exists. The fine-tuning of Earth when you have a, last week I was talking about teachers and how powerful they are. A teacher takes his kids in school and plants a seed for everyone to learn. You all did this in school, right? Planted something. They plant those greens. What are those called again? That's what we did. Where they start shooting out sprouts or whatever, right? Did you, what, what are those greens called? One of these, I don't know, in England they all do it. So, well, bean sprouts, right? They do it in schools. Everyone does it in schools. So we, we plant a seed in the ground and we put it by the window and he teaches the child, oh, look how nature works. Isn't it nice? It comes by itself. The sunlight and there's this and there's that. But as opposed to that, if let's say we're taught, look at the odds of life existing. Almost impossible. But for the sun to be in its perfect position from earth, not too far and not too close, for earth to have life on it, for us to be able to live on a planet that has life ability on it, is so fine-tuned. It's like taking the radio and putting it on its right, just, you know, there's there old radios where you had to turn it and it was like, and get the right tuning, tune it in. Think about earth and its fine-tuning of how perfect everything is for life. Oxygen at 20% always, so that we can exist. Everything is so fine-tuned, the way that fruits and humans, just for my flesh I could see God. If you look at a human being, you say, wait a second, so who created it? And you say to yourself, okay, something created us, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was something like me and you. Well, then you've got a question. Who created me and you? Who created that? If that thing is finite, then who created it? Only you come to a conclusion that an infinite being is what created all of us, past, present, and future. Something which isn't bound to the finite. And with that, you have logic. Logic in both areas. When I'm going through a difficulty, logic says to me, 
I need to use that over my emotions. A tremendous amount of logic is needed for faith. So that is the first thing I wanted to share with you. And it ties into the teaching here of this week. By the way, if you don't mind, someone maybe at the back to open the door so we can have some air. Am, am I the only one that's hot? No, crosswind gets too cold. Like too quickly. Let's try. So this is what Hillel said. In Mishnah 6 of chapter 2, he said, Hillel the Great, he was by the river and he saw a skull floating on the water. A human skull. How can that be? That part I'm adding. How can that be? A human skull. That's so sad. Floating on the water. <laughs> no, it can float. If it, was, if it had a nice hole in it from all angles, see it, the water. We can discuss it. We could talk about that. So anyway, how can this float? How is it so... It's sad to see a human skull in the water. How did it end up here? And he said to the skull, because you drowned others, you were drowned. And those who drowned you will themselves be drowned. Meaning that everything has a pattern in life. This does not include Shatashmad, times of destruction, when there's destruction in the world, like a Holocaust, that has its own rules. But in general, everything has a pattern in the world. And we have a rule that which means evil is done by people that did bad before. And good is done by people that did good before. So let's say somebody is meant to be, uh, his time to leave this world was on a certain date. Okay? Um, May the 15th was the day that the person was meant to be Leave this world. Finish. Someone comes and shoots him. So he'll go. They'll say, hey, you killed him. They'll say, no, I know. God's plan was that that person was meant to die on May 15th. They'll say, no. It's true that his plan was that that person needs to die on May 15th, but it didn't have to be through you. It could have been through someone else. Or it could have been through some other cause. The fact that it was you was because... You did something wrong beforehand that caused you to be... It's a downward pit. That's how we look at things. Either when you do good, you are given opportunities to do more good. And when you do bad, you have to know that the bad you do was because you already did something bad in the past that caused you to now go into this pit of doing something bad. Yes? That's basically karma. Yes, sort of. Sort of. Basically. Good, good, good. Good description. Also... It's basically karma. Because in Judaism, we have something called lifnim mishurat Although, yes, karma exists, but we also have a rule that things can go a bit more than the ruling, a bit kinder than the ruling. So like when you go to court and the judge sits there and asks you all these different questions and wants to find a favor in you, says, oh, you did something nice a few weeks ago. I'm going to find... So that's how God works as well. Although karma's, karma isn't 100% true. Do you know why? Because if it was, the minute someone does something bad, he should feel the repercussions of bad immediately. He has a chance to repent, to say, I'm sorry, to get forgiveness. Right? There's time where there's healing. So karma doesn't really exist according to Judaism. It's kind of, it's basically karma according to Judaism. But this is what he said. He saw the skull. Oh, did you have another question? Go for it. Okay, so like for example, you're telling me that that person was supposed to die on that day. So what if, for example, like a two-year-old kid, God forbid, God forbid, passes away? How are you supposed to explain that, that that kid did something bad? doesn't make sense. Never did something bad. But according to Jewish treat, teaching, and this is what Hillel is saying, that that person also came from a Gilgul, a reincarnation of something else that happened. That we don't know the full story. Okay, but this is part of our understanding, is that when we see something, no matter how difficult it is, we're using faith and logic of faith 
to explain the most difficult situations with saying that what happened was, it's not, as a, it's not as an excuse. This is the reality, according to how we understand things. But this is the reality. That even the most difficult of situations, we can still live with. You don't have to say, I'm giving up. There's a way to use logic to overcome the most difficult, the most painful situation that we can never understand. Like a two-year-old. That makes no logical sense. But... If we use this, the logic of, of faith, we can come to terms. It's very difficult. Maybe it's impossible to fully come to terms with it. But there's some way out that will give me a chance of continuing my life. Even in that most difficult situation where logically, where emotionally there's no way of explaining it. Okay? But the concept of reincarnation, there's other things also. One of them is reincarnation. Another, by the way, another thing is, just if somebody has uh, to answer this question, if somebody is born with HIV, is that fair for the child? But the child has it. How come? Well, it was the choice of the parent, or maybe it wasn't the choice of the parent, but the child is now born with something that they didn't choose. How is that fair? It's not. It's not. But one thing's for sure, the child is still born. So reality can happen, even if it doesn't emotionally make any sense. Physical reality can happen, even if emotionally it won't make sense to us. And the question is, can we actually rationalize with it, with faith? And the answer is yes. Yes. So does that, does that like, take a part of your tikkun? Yes. Well, we have to understand, this was once a great rabbi explained, the Chafetz Chaim, and we'll move on from there. The Chafetz Chaim, a great rabbi, once went to a funeral of a child that passed away, and he sat with the family, and the family were crying. They said, Rabbi, you're the greatest... Rabbi, rabbi lived about 100 years ago, wrote some of the greatest works. You're one of the greatest. Please explain this to us. It's, it's just too difficult. And he explained something beautifully. He said that it's like going on the bus. And you have a day pass on the bus. Everyone gets to 120 years in this world. You go on the bus, you have a day pass. One person needs to get off. Let's say you're traveling in Jerusalem. One person needs to get off at Givat Shaul at the entrance of Jerusalem. Another one needs to get off at Ramot. And another one needs to get off in uh, the center of Jerusalem. So you, you get in the bus at the beginning, and you ask the guy, hey, where are you going? Where are you getting off? He says, I'm getting off for the center. So you see, he's still in the bus. The another guy, he says, when are you getting off? He says, I'm getting off at Givat Shaul, the entrance of Jerusalem. You say, wait a second, but we just passed that. Yeah, but I bought a day pass. I want to stay on the bus, make the most out of my money. I paid... For the day, I paid 50 bucks or whatever, five bucks, to be on the bus for a day. And I want to make the most of my money, so I want to stay on the bus for the whole travel right around Jerusalem. What do we say to him? That's crazy. When it's your bus stop that you need to get off at, that is your bus stop that you need to get off at. So although it might be very difficult for us to come to terms with what happened. But that was her bus stop. That was that child's bus stop. And we're all on this world, on this planet, for a very limited time. And at some point, the bus stop happens. But there's no point staying on. The ticket's taking us to a certain place. What's, what's the point of staying on if we don't have to? Okay. So, here's a question. Why were the Egyptians, this is part of it, why were the Egyptians punished for enslaving the Jews? Hey, guys, you ready? It's too hot still. Should we open the back door? Why were they punished for enslaving the Jews? Weren't they meant to? Yes. They didn't have to be the ones to enslave the Jews. They didn't have to be the ones doing it. 
That's one answer. It could have been someone else. And why was it them? Because they were the world's uh, power at the time that were doing tremendous evil on the world. And because they had tremendous bad energy already, they were the ones that were going to do it. That is the concept that we're talking about. There's another answer. Why were they punished? God already said that I'm going to send my children to a land that's not theirs. To Abraham. Told him, your grandchildren are going to be sent to Egypt. We, celebrate, we talk about Egypt so much. Why did we... What did they do wrong? You gave one answer. It didn't have to be them. What else? Nachmanides says, yes, it's true it was the Egyptians and it was meant to be them, but they didn't have to do it as difficult. They didn't have to be as cruel. That's another explanation. And there's another explanation. They could have stopped. Remember? When Moses came to Pharaoh, he said, let the Jews go, let my people go. What did he say? No. Well, he could have stopped. He could have said, okay. But he didn't. And then another plague came, and another plague came, another plague. He could have stopped. So in Jewish teaching also, when we do what's wrong, we also have the ability to do teshuvah, repent. Okay, there's three aspects of saying sorry to the bad that we do, so that we don't become the ambassadors of more bad in the future. Okay, what is it? I stop. Go on. You were going to say? Please say. I said flowers. Flowers? Okay, that could be. Okay. But uh, I think that's more of a joke than... No. Go on, what's the, what's the, what do you think? Huh? Yes, regret. Apologizing. Come on, what else? Taking upon himself for the future. Huh? Yes, taking upon the future that I won't do it again. So, if I bring flowers and I really say I apologize for the past. And I verbally say it. And I say that I won't do it again. And I've shown that I've left my past. Then it could really work. But if I just throw flowers at the door and say, text, hey, left you flowers at the front door, yo. Sorry for the problems I made. Can we get back together again? Right. So then we all know why you want to get back together. And we all know why the flowers were given. Okay? But really a true sorry would be that uh, regret, I stop, and I actually verbally say it. Okay? So that's uh, uh, what needs to be done with Teshuvah as well. Okay, I'm going to continue because Hillel said some amazing teachings here in Mishnah number 7. Teaching number 7. He used to say, too much more flesh, not too much flesh. One who increases flesh, meaning eating more, increases worms. One who increases possessions, increases worry. One who increases wives, okay, calm down, increases witchcraft. One who increases maidservants, increases promiscuity. One who increases slaves, increases thievery. One who, but one who increases Torah increases life. One who increases study increases wisdom. One who increases counsel increases understanding. One who increases charity increases peace. One who acquires a good name acquires it for himself. And one who acquires the words of Torah has acquired life in the world to come. Let's talk about that. It's a, lot of, a lot of ideas over here. But let's talk about some of them. One who increases flesh increases worms. Careful what your goals are. That's what he's saying. Sometimes we all have a, we all have a need to eat. We're hungry, so we need to eat. But don't take it too far. Okay, this is the words of Maimonides. He says like this, I'm going to translate his wording, so it's not going to be as good as I just read it to you. But this is a translation from Maimonides. He says like this, A person should always intend his actions and his heart to do 
and to know the ways of God only. And therefore, when you sit and when you get up, when you speak, everything should be in that mindset. How? When you do business or you do work and you're taking your income, you're taking money. Don't do it just to make money alone. Don't make the money your goal. What should be your goal? You should do the actions in order that you should have the right tools to live so that the body can have what it needs. It can eat, it can drink, it can live, it can marry, right? And when you eat and drink and all these things, don't have in your heart to do them only in order to have benefit and that alone. Until it comes to a point where someone only eats and drinks because it's sweet to my uh, palate. Only a person should do all these things in order that he should be healthy and healthy in his body alone. But not beyond that. One great rabbi t- said like this, Rav Noach Weinberg, when it comes to physical pleasures, God wants you to have them. Bless you. When it comes to physical pleasures... God wants you to have them. COVID? COVID? <laughs> Nowadays, no one says bless you anymore. It's like COVID? Omicron? Anyway. Only for health, I'm asking. Not for any other reason. So, when it comes to being healthy, eating, or anything else, making money, the goal isn't the money or the food. That we need to do in order to survive. And we need to survive in order to be the best servants of God. But not that the goal is to be eating alone. Because he says, what happens to that at the end? Think about what happens to the person that overeats at the end. The Talmud says something fascinating. Over 90% of people die before their age because of food. The Talmud says, we talk about the bus stop. Most people leave their bus stop a bit earlier, a few stops early. Why? Because they weren't healthy with the way they eat. Maimonides, he says that when a person eats, always leave a, a, a quarter empty of your stomach. Don't overstuff your stomach. Why? Because then the machine, it's like when you have a machine that's grinding. If it's overfilled all the time, it has to work too hard. But when you don't overfill it, then the machine, your stomach, can do its work in a much better fashion. Never overstuff yourself. And he goes through many lists of things that a person should do logically, written 800 years ago, but still apply today to avoid sicknesses. Not just things that can heal us after we're sick, but things that can avoid sickness from before. That's what he's saying. More flesh, more worms. Listen to this. I'm going to tell you a Proverbs. This is a Proverbs written by Solomon, chapter 19, verse 10. It's not beautiful for a fool to have pleasure. It might be nice for him, but it's not beautiful for him. Why? Worse so for a servant that now rules over his master. You get it? Not beautiful for a fool to have pleasures. He might enjoy them, but it's not beautiful for him. Why? What's a fool? They can't enjoy their pleasures because they're a fool. Well, they can't enjoy them properly. That's one way of being foolish, right? You're having something which is so good in front of you and suffering from it. Yes. You can't even enjoy it. You're so busy thinking of what else you can have. Oh, my stupid Tesla's run out of battery. You know, like... Hello, you've got a Tesla. Okay, so uh, I'm just giving an example where you have pleasures, but you are so focused on the problems of your pleasures, you don't even enjoy them. That's one way a fool can work, right? What else? We've been talking about something. What happens when you indulge? When you have too much of the physical? What happens to us? Do we get more energy or we go down in energy? We lose energy. That's what Rav Noach Weinberg always used to say, the founder of Aish. He said, 
measure physical pleasure by the horsepower. How much energy does it give you afterwards? Physical pleasure is good until indulgence. When you have too much and it starts bringing you down. Oh, then you know you're in danger. What does the fool do? Overdoes it. Addictive personality. Oh, I made some money. Let me make some more. I ate some food. It tastes delicious. Let me go and taste. Let me vlog on TikTok or whatever it is. It's coming up in every talk, I'm telling you. Let me vlog on TikTok about every single time I eat somewhere. And I'll taste every type of food. And what happens? More flesh. More worms. It's not the goal. The goal isn't to eat or to have tastes. That's a need that I have in order to survive. Because if I didn't eat, I wouldn't survive and I wouldn't be able to be a person that can do the right things in this world. But that's not the goal of life. And when we make that the goal, that's when we make mistakes. So that's why he says it's not beautiful for a fool to have pleasures. Because when you watch him, you're like, oh my gosh, that's taking it to the next level. Guys, look at what's going on here. Look what's going on in LA. One of the most wealthy places. But filled, absolutely filled with mental health illness. Every, the homelessness, that's to do with that also. There's a lot, I'm not blaming every person that's homeless on the fact that they, may, they must be with mental health issues, but there's a lot of that also. It's, it's mind-blowing. I know somebody in, in, my, in the synagogue that I pray, there's people that work in the pharmacy business. Someone who works in the pharmacy business in Beverly Hills, and somebody who's in the pharmacy business somewhere in uh, Koreatown or downtown. He has a few different places. And they told me something very interesting. We were talking about this on Shabbat on the way home. They told me something very interesting. In Beverly Hills, what kind of drugs are they getting? Antidepressant. Antidepressant. Stuff that's to do with depression and happiness and health. Mental health. In... Koreatown and those areas, what type of drugs are they getting? Painkillers. Painkillers. People that are working hard for hours on end. Builders, contractors that are working very, very hard from morning to night. Physical labor. And they need a lot of painkillers. Those kind of pains. Interesting how mental health, it says, according to Judaism... The, the, the challenge of wealthy is greater than the challenge of poor in many areas. And that's what we're saying here. Eventually, the servant, which is the food or the money, it's meant to serve me, is now ruling over the master, me. That's what he says. That's what Shlomo Melech says. It's not beautiful. For a fool to have pleasures, he enjoys them. But it's not beautiful when we look at it. Why? Because it comes that the servant, the money and the food, the stuff you have becomes a master over the person because you made it a gold. You guys get what I'm saying? That is ruling over you. Why? Because that came the goal. Don't make it the goal. That's, that's the... What's the rule? Beware of indulgence. Have physical pleasures on condition. It gives you horsepower for the next two days, the next day. It gives you energy for the next hour. But if you overeat and it makes you tired, then you know you overdid it. That's the test. The test is how you will feel after. And this, by the way, is how we approach all of Judaism. Physicality, the money, the cars, the stuff, those are not the goal. Those are like the clothing for the soul. Like the, the body is also not the goal. Even someone who works out just three times a day, two times a day, just so that I should look good is not the goal. Eventually, even that person will feel down. The goal is to look good so, and feel good so that I have confidence to get through the next day and through whatever I need to. But that's not the goal in itself. 
It's a means. It's a tool. And that's how we look at the entire Judaism as well. That's why in, in Kabbalah it says that God actually looked at the Torah and created the universe. What does that mean? The Torah was created only when it was, it was only written when we had the physical world. What does it mean that God looked at the Torah and created the universe? Do you know what it means? His Stakelbo in Kabbalah teaching, it says that this, what we see, was, a, already, was an, a reaction to what God already created before and then created this. That means when it says you should honor your father and mother, it's not that parents exist and then the Torah says honor your father and mother. First, it, the Torah says honor your parents. Now I'll make parents. And parents exist because of honor your father. Let me give you another scientific idea. Here, I wrote down something very interesting. Scientifically, we have an amazing body. Okay, that's what I was talking about at the beginning. We have an unbelievable body. We think about how the human body works, mind-blowing. The white blood, just blood cells are mind-blowing. How the blood works. 1% of our body is white, uh, 1% of our blood is white blood cells, which actually go against the flow. When there's an emergency, when there's a cut in my body, the white blood cells are emergency. They start moving against the flow of my own blood in order to get to its right position quickly, in seconds. My mind is shooting up. White blood cells are already coming. So there are also blood clotting cells. Can you imagine you had a bottle of wine and a little hole at the bottom? It doesn't really work with glass, but let's say there was a little hole at the bottom. That's it. You have to get another bottle. That's it. Done. There's a hole. You can't fix it. You have a hole in a tire. We just had one the other day. We're driving out of a... Uh, not here. In the, she was driving out of the... All my life comes out. Very vulnerable. But we were driving, she was driving out of the office and we parked you know, somewhere in the alley and there was a wood just behind the car with three nails sticking out. Reverses the car. Three nails straight in. She calls me up. What should I do? Pull it out. Drive off, go to the guy with it. If you pull it out, then the air comes out. But I don't have a piece to do it. So anyway, I came uh, quickly enough and pulled it out and quickly drove to the guy. The car, uh, thank God it's only down the road. Quickly drove to the car garage. So I had a bit of air still in the tire and he fixed it and whatever. A tire gets a hole. They, we asked him, can you fix it? Can you patch it up? He said, no, there's three holes too close to each other. So even if we open one a little bit more and put a piece in it, there's another one that's too close to it. You can't fix it. You have to get a new tire. I'm not sure if it was a business scam or it wasn't, but it makes sense. So I bought it. Had to get another, but it, did, it wasn't a scam because he's a very reliable, uh, good, holy Jewish guy. Uh, so so uh, that, that's my... I, I'm close to him. He's like a really nice guy. So anyway, so that's... Uh, that's how the tire works. What about clothes? Imagine buying clothing where it tears, let's say, over here. And I tell you, listen, this is Elon Musk Tesla-made SpaceX jacket. And I say, why? How? I say, listen, after it tears, it knows how to close itself up again. And you just leave it on the side for a few hours. The cut of your jacket will come back to itself and... Completely clean. You'll never notice that you cut your jacket. It looks after itself. It's mind-blowing. That's the human body. A car. You smash the car. Don't worry. Tesla's got you covered. You don't need insurance. Just leave your car on the side for two hours. You're anyway charging it for two hours. Leave it on the side. All of a sudden, it heals itself. But that's what the human body does. It's losing blood. All of a sudden... There are three aspects of your blood shot from the liver, which are blood clotting cells. And as soon as it see, ah, okay, comes to the part where there's, where there's a cut, it starts congealing. It gets in touch with the air, the oxygen, boom, and it closes itself up. What are these aspects? They're called the platelets. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Platelets, Platelet, sorry. Prothrombin, 
It shows how little I know, unless I Google it. And vitamin K. Vitamin K. So, uh, these three things are what are the blood, these are three aspects of the blood clotting uh, cells. Now, listen to this. They discovered, scientists that are into Judaism as well, they discovered that until the eighth day, they are very low. The number, the percentage, is very low. Once the child hits the eighth day, all of a sudden, these three parts of the blood clotting cells are above 100%. Over 115%. This is a scientific fact. Over 115%. And it gets to its highest point on the eighth day of the baby's birth more than any other day of his lifetime. So even when he becomes an adult and he's healthy and he's working out and he's taking his protein shakes or whatever else he's taking, his uh, blood clotting cells are not as high or whatever it is that's needed to make blood clotting cells is not as high as on the eighth day of birth. That is mind-blowing. And what, the, what do they say? Oh, that's to do with Brit Milan, the circumcision, because that's the time when they cut. And the baby's very, very new, only on the eighth day, but they discovered the blood actually... Uh, it, um, there's extra clotting cells that allow it to get closed up again. Interesting. So what do they say? Ah, that's why Judaism said it. Judaism said, on the eighth day, you have circumcision because they're smart. They knew about these things. So they wanted it to fit in to the system. No, that's not how we look at it. According to Judaism, first God saw the Torah, and the Torah says, I want the eighth day to be a Brit Milan. On the eighth day, there needs to be a circumcision. He created the world, and there are cells, blood clotting cells, that are strengthened on the eighth day to fit in with what which God said, not the other way around. Something, that's the perspective of Judaism. Everything in this world fits in with the rules of the Torah because the Torah was created first, and that was the blueprint of the earth, which shows to you, by the way, how we look at Torah, how vast it is. It's not just like a a limited concept, but something which is, it says, wider than the ocean. Anyway, so that's all to do with eating more, and, uh, and the more flesh, the more worms. What am I saying? That the goal isn't the physical. The physical, like the clothing, is only a means, is a, is a tool for me, but it's not my goal. It's a tool for me, but it's not my, never make things that are not, Meant to be a goal, a goal. And one of them is uh, eating and tastes and physical pleasures. The next is more property. The more you own, the more worries. What does that, ha- what does that, how does that relate to us? Well, sometimes we say to ourselves, ah, oh, if only I lived a life like this person. If only I can have, I've tried so hard. I got my real estate license. I worked on my everything that I need to. I look good. I work out. I, and it's just not working the way I should. What do we say? The more you have, the more worries. Don't think that if I had more, my life will be better. Because there are many challenges. Excuse me. There are many challenges that come along with it. So what do we do? Maybe everyone will give up. Because they'll say, okay, huh, too much property is too much worries. So maybe I should never work. What do we say? There's a rule. As long as it's not above the normal sense of effort. When somebody is working to a point where they don't date, seriously, to a point where that's all they think about, at night they think about their work, they can't sleep much, in the morning they don't eat right, then we know they are doing above what's normal in sense of effort. There's also time that we need to study Torah. So anything above that's normal in order to survive is called what we call me'evelishtadlut and something which is not safe to do. And we know that if someone is doing more than that and still is depressed, why am I not as wealthy as so-and-so? We say to him, this is a sense of thought he needs to have. I know why God's not giving it to me. Because if I had too much, I'm going to have too many worries and who knows how it's going to work out for me. Maybe for him it works out. 
But for me, it might be very difficult. There's another idea. Some people say, ah, I have a business. I want to open another, another department somewhere else. I'm doing well. I've opened already two. A laundromat. I have one here, one here, one there. Let me open another five. I'm going to open them all over the world. What do we say to him? You're already making a lot of money. You're already doing well. You have security. More means more worries. Now is the time to spend other things besides for that. You're doing well. Don't always try to open more. There's a certain need in us and a, f- a good feeling of, of being able to have power when we're able to build business and succeed. We're like, ah, oh, that feels so... Let's open another one. But that need and that push to open more and more and more is the need many times of power as opposed to the need of my own greatness. And like what he says, this is what the Bartanura, one of the commentaries says here, very interesting. He heard one great businessman say, the Bartanura says this, one of the commentaries. He says, save me from spreading my soul around the world. Hatsileni mi pizu hanefesh. He used to pray. God save me from spreading around my soul. What does he mean? Well, everywhere I open another property, my soul is there too. And then I can't think. Right? Ah, I've got that, that worry to think about. That worry to... The more I open, the more my soul is in other places. And the less it's with me. He used to pray, Save me from not spreading my soul everywhere. Okay. We're going to continue with some of the interesting ones. Eitan, you can wake up now. More women... More witchcraft, he says. More women, more witchcraft. Now, first of all, never in Judaism, this is a question that many have with me, never in Judaism was it uh, ideal to have more than one wife. Even when, throughout history, when uh, it was normal to marry more than one wife, even within Judaism, by the way, until Takanat Rabbeinu Gershom, which I understand was about a thousand years ago, it was allowed to marry more than one wife, but it was never ideal. And I understand that there are still communities today, till today, that don't have that decree within the Sephardic communities that don't have that decree. Yeah, we don't hold of it nowadays. No one does it. But uh, there are very minute uh, communities that don't hold of Rabbeinu Gershom's decree, but we all basically hold of it today in general. I think there are some Yemenite, uh, Yemenite Jews. Am I right, Eitan? <laughs> Told you that's why you should wake up. So, uh, but it's never, never been ideal. That means that if you look at the Torah, even though, well, first you've got Adam and Eve. The ideal situation wasn't a, one man with multiple wives. And even if you look later on, Abraham... Gets married. He gets married too. Anyone remember? Who was Abram's wife? Sarah. Sarah. Eventually, after many, many years, they couldn't have children. And in their time, it was normal for her to give over her maidservant and say, can you carry a child for me with this woman? Okay, it's almost like somebody uh, would uh, today, they would do uh, surrogacy, right? It's almost like that, but she would ask him, can you take this child? You see, uh, having children wasn't um, wasn't as objectified as it is today. Yes, there was, there was, Mazatov. Yes, there was desires. Yes, desires existed. And there were the awareness of sexual desires, but it wasn't objectified as it is today. Think about a world without any TV without any uh, promotion, without any music that promotes that whole thing, right? So sexuality won't be as objectified. So even though today we cannot, that's why we have this decree. But there used to be a time where it wasn't objectified in that way. And a person would say, this is my surrogate, this can carry my child for me. Even though it's not ideal, even in Judaism. You should know. It's not an ideal situation. 
But we do know that Abraham eventually married Hagar after he was very, very old and couldn't have children with his first wife. And eventually he did have a child with Sarah. And the same was with Jacob. He was tricked into a second wife, even though he only wanted one, which was Rachel. So if you look at the Jewish history, the ideal situation always was one wife. So if anyone ever asks you, that's not true. Even though throughout history, the world didn't think this way. The same way the world thought infanticide was a normal thing. The world used to think that it's normal to take a brand new baby and dispose of it. Throughout Greek culture, Roman culture, it's newborn, doesn't feel much, doesn't feel pain. Today, that's unheard of. Well, that's another discussion, I don't want to get in. But it's unheard of, of infanticide, everyone agrees that's evil. That's terrible. But you can rationalize with it. You can say, wait, the child doesn't feel, doesn't understand yet. For who? Well, there's also pain for those that have to grow up the child also. So I, I, don't, I agree with you. It's wrong. But I'm just saying that's uh, something. So more women, more witchcraft. What does that mean? So our commentaries say like this. Now, nowadays, we don't really have witchcraft. But in the times of the Talmud, there was. As much as there was a tremendous spiritual connection, there was also a spiritual connection to the evil forces of witchcraft. And the commentaries say that in Hebrew, when two wives are married to the same person, do you know what they're called? Sister wives, is that what they, is that what they call them in English? They are called in Hebrew tzavot, pains, because they never got along with each other. They always hated each other. And by the way, each one, there was laws. It's not like they all used to hang out together. Each one used to have their own home, their own private space. It wasn't like they would meet each other all the time. But there was a tremendous animosity between them. And they would use witchcraft in order to curse out the other. Now, witchcraft, by the way, doesn't exist. But that was the energy that many females would use. Why? Why? Because it's a verbal way of fighting as opposed to a physical way of fighting. And that is something that we can relate to. Meaning, verbal fighting is something that we, we, we can relate to. And it says, more, uh, more women, more witchcraft. Okay, okay, this, again, it doesn't relate to much, as much to, to us today. But that is the discussion. Then he says... The more servants, okay, that also doesn't relate, but again, servants, by the way, were in Jewish law very strict. If you had someone that served you, you had to look after them. You had to make sure that they had everything before, they ate before you. They slept, they had something to sleep on before you have something to sleep on. It says, till a point where kana evet, kana adon. If someone has a servant, they have a master. There's a Talmud which brings many laws of if you have a servant. And you can't just have one by no means. It would only be because that person was stealing or because he's very poor and he doesn't know how to survive the next day. So he says, you know what? I'll work for you for good. I'll become your servant. You take me on. Feed me. I can't survive anymore. I'm homeless. So the person will take him in and have him as a servant. Okay? So it says that these people, whether they're servants, or shefachot, maidservants, were not the best people because either they were in thieves, thievery or they were on the streets and we don't know what their story is. And that's because, so that's what it's saying here. When you have someone like that in your home, they're bringing bad energy into your house. So be careful not to have too many servants. That's what he says. If you have too many servants, too much theft, by the way, in the times of the Bet HaMikdash, the temple, it says that even many non-Jews would want to be servants for the Jewish people too. Why? Because they knew that they would be treated with the laws of the Torah also. And it was a pleasure for them to be treated amongst the Jews as a servant. Because the Jew has a law above him, which is the Torah, and he has to follow those laws also. 
So for that reason, many non-Jews tried to be, that's what it says, that many non-Jews tried to be servants of the Jewish people also during the times of the Bet HaMidash of the Temple. So okay, so those are not as important. But then, the, then Hillel says all the things that you can't have, too much of. And then he gives a list of things that you can have a lot of. And it's very important in life that we can learn from this something also. Very important. Whenever, when it comes to education or saying no to somebody, you always have to say, okay, what can I give you instead to compromise? Okay, I don't want this, but what are you giving in return? Let's say you're married and your, your husband says to you, uh, I want to take, take a break. I want to go away. So you say, no, I need you home. So what do you say? I need you home. So, okay, I'll be home. The right response actually for a relationship to be healthy is to say what you can give in return. Right? Or if she says, I want to go away. You say, no, this time is not good for me. What do you give in return? Not just to say no, but what do you, also with children. You say no to the child. No, I don't want you to go out there. I don't want you to have a phone yet. Now it's very hard. In our generation, it's much harder. We want to prolong some of the things that we really don't want our kids to have, like having a phone. That's, I really want to wait as long as I can till, I, till they ask me that question. Right? So they say, I want a phone. What can I give them in return when they ask me that question? You can't just say no. And that's exactly what we learn here as well. He says a bunch of no's. But then he says a bunch of things that you can have in return. Don't worry. These are things that you shouldn't do because they hurt you. But I'm going to give you a bunch of things that you can do and benefit from because they will benefit you and you'll have a lot of good from them. So what does he say? I'm going to go through them very quickly. He says more Torah, more life. The Torah actually promises you. Even though you put your energy and your thought into thinking, you will have longer life when you study Torah. If you look at the rabbis, even of our generation, not of the past generation, Rabbi Steinman, Rabbi Vadi Yosef just passed away recently. Uh, Rav, uh, Rav Chaim Kanievsky, all of the great rabbis, they live till 95, 100, 105. It's amazing. So don't think that because you're thinking the words of Torah and sitting down studying for hours and end that that's going to make you old, the opposite is true. When you occupy your mind with wisdom, and you memorize and you toil on wisdom, you will actually stay young. And that's what it says. More Torah, more life. The more sitting, the more wisdom. This is very important. A person thinks, ah, I'm going to sit down and study something. I'm going backwards in life. I could be making more money. I could be doing more business. You know, I'm 35. Well, I'm going to sit down and study. It says no. Don't think you're going back in life. You're going ahead in life. Because when you sit and you study and you read, you actually acquire more wisdom. And that's beautiful. He says something very interesting. The more advice, the more understanding. Does that make sense? Hey, I'm having problems with my date. Can you give me advice on this one, this and this, this? He gives you an answer. You go to the next guy. Hey, I'm having problems with my date. What do you think? Should I do this? No way. You should drop her. He said you should stay with her. He said you should drop her. What's going on here? Go to the next guy. Uh, I'm not sure, actually. You should wait a bit longer. Okay, he says wait a bit longer. Go to the next guy. He gives me another advice. Take a break for two weeks. Go to the next one. She says to me, uh, call and be very cold. For now, don't be very friendly and wait for him to be friendly first. Then you can join them. Right? Everyone gives a different advice. That's what he says. More advice, the more understanding. How come? How come? What do you think the answer is? Stephen, please. You ask many people for different advice. And we're saying the more you ask, doesn't it sound like the more confused you'll get? Right? The more advice you ask, the more confusion, it should say. Aha, uh-huh. more options. What's he saying? Yes? 
you you have to kind of find your own truth because like no one else is in your shoes. So exactly. Not a, they can't give you the answer. You exactly. Like you said also, and that's what you're saying. When you listen to everybody's advice, you don't have to take everyone's advice. You are you at the end of the day, and you make your own decisions. But it's beautiful to be able to listen to everybody's experience and come up with the best solution that you can. That's what it says. The more advice, the more understanding. Because you hear every single person's experience. By the way, this does not apply to Jewish law. When it comes to Jewish law, uh, is it theft if I, uh, if I take this money from him, but don't, you know, I've got a ticket, but then just use the ticket multiple times because the guy never clicked it. So, you know, the, I just use that ticket many times. Is it theft? Well, when it comes to Jewish law, either it's yes or it's no. There's no advice there. Yeah. But there is advice in areas that are just about life. Hashkafah, the way we look at life, like dating. Okay, so that does need advice, and it says that the more advice, the more understanding, more charity, more peace. Anyone want a peace in a relationship? Be a giver in the relationship. Don't say, oh, I'll wait for them to give to me, and then I'll have peace. I did my part, now let them do their part. So everyone's saying, I did my part, this. she's saying, I did my part. So no one's initiating the relationship. Right, you, know, you get how that happens? So what do you do? Don't do that. You do your part always, no matter who it is you're going out with. And we'll see how much of her part she's doing also. But I'm going to do my fullest. Always. That's called The more I give, the more peace I'll have. And that really is applying to a relationship itself, to marriage. And it applies to the world. Because it comes contagious. When you give, other people see you give. Ah, you gave, so I'll also give. Ah, you stepped up, said so I'll also step up. There's a, there's a, I know the time is out. Okay, you guys can leave if you want, but I just want to, I want to go through the last, one last, one last thing. So there is an idea, like I, I'll just give you an example. I go to the synagogue Netzach on Shabbat. So I walk in there. And the security guards have a rule. We cannot help anyone with strollers. No helping. Why? Because they're busy checking everyone. It's not safe. I agree. So anyone with strollers have to go up the stairs on their own. So I see that someone is going up the stairs by himself. I'm like, come on, guys, let's help. So I help the lady take the thing up the stairs. Then another person comes. Someone else is helping. It comes contagious. When you give, it comes contagious. I saw it with my own eyes, but I'm sure it happens to you also. We get influenced by the good. That's what he says. The more giving, the more peace. And he says, if you acquire a good name, you acquire it for yourself. We've got to open the doors. It's so hot. We, if you acquire a good name, we acquire it for yourself. If you buy a house or you buy something physical... What does it say? So you bought it once. So now you live in it. You bought it, you bought it once. When you acquire a good name, that stays with you forever. Eventually your house, you get old, and who has the house after you? Your children or someone else. You sell it and they have the money. But when it comes to a good name, that really is yours forever. That defines you. That gets written on your grave. Acquiring yourself a good name is acquired for yourself forever. Whilst with physical stuff, it's not with you forever. And finally, he says, if somebody acquires the wisdom of Torah, you are acquiring the world to come. You acquire many things because that's the key to many other things in life. It's like going into a, uh, uh, a king's palace and he says, hey, guys, whatever you want, you could take, but only one thing. And everyone goes running around. Oh. Some, there's a gold here, a jewelry here, a ring here. And suddenly they see on a door a big sign. Everything in this room is for your taking if you can get in. So, oh, that's cool. He finds one key. And that must be it. I'll take the key. The king says, okay, that's your one thing. He takes the key, opens the door, and goes in that room filled with gold and jewelry and everything else that he can imagine. He got one thing, but it gave him an opening to many more. That's the idea of acquiring Torah. If somebody will take 
the ideas of Pirkei Avot, the ideas of the Torah, and learn them inside out, he gets a key to many things, to understanding relationships, the key to mental health, the key to many things. Not just to one, how to bring up children, how to, there's many things, how to get on with family, how to, there's many, many things. Torah is the, is the key to the world to come. Why? Because with that you get to do many, many other mitzvot as well. And that's why he says specifically, someone who acquires Torah acquires the world to come. So anyway, those are some of the teachings of Hillel. Heavy, powerful, and very meaningful at the same time. And I hope you all uh, enjoyed them. And I hope I didn't keep you too long, but I'm sure it was worth it. And uh, thanks for being here.